may be seated. I'm going to have you turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. I was just kind of sharing uh, this morning, I don't even know if I've ever preached on this or if I have, it's from a different Gospel, it must have been years ago, I don't remember, but anyways, probably one of the most challenging stories or incidences in the life of Jesus, and I believe especially to the context that I'm speaking in, I'm sure that you and I will be challenged today. You know, some of us may be wondering how we're going to get through the new economic realities. You know, every day on the news we hear about it, right? And it can only be statistics. You know, 7.4% of Albertans are now unemployed. That's a statistic until it happens to us personally. And then everything starts to change in our life. Isn't that true? Absolutely. Or maybe we're running a business, all of a sudden we, we see our profits begin to diminish. And so the economy is slowing down. And for many, you know, fear begins to well up inside of them. You know, what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to go on? How are we going to handle uh, this uncertainty, this, this future that we don't know where we're headed? And sometimes we wonder, when we go through a challenging moment in our life where God is and what he's doing. And so we may be wondering, you know, what, what is God really doing? Um, how many think this hasn't caught God by surprise? How many think God knew about this before it was going to happen? As a matter of fact, I would even venture to say that God is somewhat, you know, allowing things to be orchestrated in such a way that he wants to get some of our attention. And when life is good and when life is fast and when life is busy and when life is pleasurable, you know, it's really hard to hear God's voice. You know, I, I love that Barry Maguire song. He says, I walked a mile with pleasure and she chattered all, all the way, and then I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word said she, but oh, never a word said she. But oh, the, you know, I made me wiser because sorrow walked with me. And you know, there's, there's some truth to that, that the difficulties and challenging experiences of life get our attention, and we begin to think in a different way, cause us to be far more reflective. Um, but I want to just assure you today, are you ready to be assured I have this deep confidence. I've gone through, you know, the oil crisis in 1973 when you were lining up your vehicles to get, you know, you didn't even know if you were going to get, you know, fuel in your vehicle. How many, anybody remember back to that time? And, uh, you know, I was living in a major center like Seattle at the time, and, you know, cars had to come on special days. If your license plate was this number, you, you could fuel up on this day. You know, that, that's actually rationing. You know, I have a little measure of that understanding. So, you know, there have been times in my own past where things like this have occurred. So this, this is what I want to assure you. We can have confidence that God will see us through every season of life. We can have that confidence. God is faithful to his children. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 37, 18, it says, The Lord watches over the blameless all their days, and their inheritance will last forever. We can look at that in a spiritual way. We can also look at that in a financial way. And then it says, In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, what will the righteous experience? Plenty. God says, No, I'm going to take care of you. Even have to fly ravens in to bring you lunch, you know? Even they have to send you up north to a different spot, you know, to, you know, to be taken care of. God is going to provide for his children. In other words, rest assured, God will see you through your present situation. But, you know, I think these moments are also a time when we can begin to reflect on our relationship with God. And I think God designs these things, these abrupt changes that cause us to ponder. 
And many times in these moments, our priorities can be changed. Don't you think God allows things to change our priorities at times? You know, because we're too busy before just living the good life. You know, choices are going to be brought before us. And the question is, how are we going to respond to those choices? Now, in his book, Confessions, this is the autobiography of St. Augustine. And it's written as a prayer. It's a very interesting read. How many have ever read Confessions? Anybody here read this book? Well, some of you, I'm really impressed. You know, it is an interesting read, and it's a prayer. Let me just read something of uh, Augustine as he relates the conversion of two court officials at a place called uh, Tyre and how their story impacted him. And this is how he says it. uh, Pontesianus, who shared an important post at court, came to our house to visit Alpius and me. Being an African, he was our compatriot, and he wanted something or other from us. So we sat down together and we talked. His eye happened to light upon a book that was laying on a gaming table nearby. He picked it up, opened it, and found it to be the letters of the Apostle Paul. This was certainly unexpected, for he had supposed it to be the kind of thing I exhausted myself in teaching. Augustine was a a teacher, by the way. But then he smiled, looked up at me, and offered his congratulations, surprised by his sudden discovery that those writings and those alone were under my eye. He himself was a baptized Christian. When I remarked that I was applying myself to intensive study of these scriptures, he began to talk to us about a monk named Anthony of Egypt, whose name was illustrious and held in high honor among your servants, though we had never heard it until this moment. When Ponticantus learned this, he dwelt more fully on the subject, enlightening us about this great man, and he was astonished at our ignorance. Pontanticus went on talking and developing the theme, and while we listened, spellbound. So it came about that he told us that one day when the court was at Tyre, he and three of his colleagues went out for a walk in the gardens that were abutting the walls, while the emperor was occupied with the morning show at the circus. Now it happened that as they strolled about, they split into pairs, one companion staying with Pontantius, while the other two went off by themselves. In their wandering, these ladders chanced upon a cottage where some servant of yours were living, poor men in spirit, the kind of people to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. There they found a book which contained the life of Anthony, and one of them began to read it. His admiration and enthusiasm were aroused, and as he read, he began to mull over the possibility of appropriating the same kind of life for himself by renunciating his secular career to serve you alone. He belonged to the ranks of the so-called administrative officers. And then quite suddenly, he was filled with a love of holiness and a realistic sense of shame and disgust with himself. He turned his gaze toward his friend and demanded, tell me, where do we hope all of our efforts are going to get us? What are we looking forward to? And whose cause are we striving Does life at court promise us anything better than promotion to being the friend of the emperor? And once we are, will that not be a precarious position fraught with all kinds of perils? Will it not mean negotiating many a hazard only to end in greater danger still? And how long will it take us to get there? Whereas I can become a friend of God here and now if I want to be. 
Even as he spoke, he was in labor with the new life that was struggling to birth within him. He directed his eyes back to the page, and as he read, a change began to occur in that hidden place within him where you alone can see. His mind was being stripped of the world as presently became apparent. The flood tide of his heart leaped on, and at last he broke off his reading with a groan as he discerned the right course and determined to take it. By now he belonged to you. He's speaking of God. This man now belongs to God. This man is now experiencing conversion. I have already torn myself away from the ambitions we cherish and have made up my mind to serve God, he told his friend. I'm going to set about it this very moment and in this very place. If you have no stomach to imitate me, at least don't stand in my way. The other replied that he would bear him company, both in the noble reward and in the glorious combat. In other words, I'm joining you in this followership of Christ. So who was this Anthony of Egypt who grew up in a Christian home of affluence and wealth? And now, not after but six months, when both his mom and father had now passed away, and according to his custom, he went to the Lord's house. This is in the fourth century. Christianity is now taking over the Roman Empire. He communed with himself and reflected as he walked on the apostles from Matthew 4.20. When You know the story when Jesus said, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they left everything to follow Jesus. He was reflecting on that and how they had followed the Savior. And then in Acts 4.35, they sold their possessions and brought them and laid them at the apostles' feet for distribution to the needy. And what, how a great hope was laid up um, for them in heaven. Pondering over these things, he entered the church and it just so happened the gospel was being read. And he heard the Lord say to the rich man, the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 21, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor and come follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. Anthony, as though God had put him in the mind of the saints and the passage had been read on his account, went out immediately from the church gave the possessions that his forefathers had acquired, and their 300 acres that were very productive and fair should no longer be a burden to himself and to his sister. And all the rest that was movable he sold and got together much money and gave to the poor, reserving a little, however, for the sake of his sister. Today we're going to look at the story of Jesus meeting a young man who in other gospels tells us he's both rich, young, and he's a ruler, the rich young ruler. We're going to discover that this story has so deeply impacted the lives of so many people, and yet probably one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible. And so often we either you know, dismiss it outright because we just don't know how to handle the message that Jesus is telling the rich young ruler. So what is the story all about? How does this incident about discipleship impact our lives today? These are the questions I want you to be thinking about. How is this going to impact me today? Do I just read it and dismiss it? What is Jesus trying to communicate not only to the rich young ruler, but what is he trying to say to you and me in the 21st century? This passage is addressing our relationship to our possessions. Now, you and I can easily dismiss it and say we're neither rich nor young nor a ruler, but let me point out to you something to just apply it to our lives. You know, last night Patty and I were watching Netflix and we watched this show called uh, 
A dollar a day, thank you. Jarred my memory. A dollar a day. And what it is, it's the story of four young men who go to Guatemala and live there for two months to try to live on one dollar a day. Because 1.1 billion people in our world today are living on a dollar a day. And how many know that that's just barely surviving? I mean, these guys were just trying to figure out if they could have enough calories to sustain life. In all of the things that people are experiencing. And so they go live in this village where everyone in the village except for one guy is basically living on a dollar a day. It's an amazing little documentary. You might want to look into it. Okay, so why am I saying all of this? Because as far as the rest of the world is concerned, you and I are some of the richest people on the planet. And I believe that this message really does apply to us in a very powerful way today. Now, we know from the early followers of Jesus that they left everything to follow him. We can say Peter and John, they left their fishing business. Matthew left his tax business. These people left a vocation. They left a lifestyle to become followers of Jesus. Matter of fact, we could even say that it cost them their very lives. Except for John, who lived to be old age, the rest of them actually were martyred in their following of Christ. So what we're going to discover is that what we often think are assets in our lives, many times our major liabilities and hindrances keeping us from the very thing we all want. You know what we all want? We all want to be free. We all want to experience joy. We all want to be extremely happy in life. Isn't that true? There's a sense we, we really want to be happy. And I don't think that's wrong. But Jesus says the way to happiness is a way that's a lot different than what our culture tells us. As a matter of fact, I would say it's diametrically opposed to what our culture is telling us. Our culture tells us if we're young, we're you know, physically attractive, if we are famous, if we have much financial resources, then we'll be happy. How many know that that's not always the truth? As a matter of fact, when we look at many young people today who have all of those things going, many of them are miserable. So those things alone are not going to provide happiness. So we're, let's take a look at what really does provide that real joy, that real happiness in our lives. And so we're going to find here in this beautiful story two elements in this realm of discipleship. And the first one is simply is, is getting to what possesses us. The first element in true discipleship is getting to what possesses us. In other words, what's controlling my life? What's got control over me? It's a great question. Because, you know, I'm talking about what is it that's driving us to do what we do? What is the driving force of our life? I mean, I think that's kind of powerful. It's what gets you up in the morning. It's what keeps you going. It's, it's what makes life worthwhile. That's what we're talking about here today. And here we find this young man searching, I believe, for the real meaning of life. And when he asks the question about eternal life, we're not just talking about life and death. We're not just talking about eternal life in the sense of the life after this life. We're talking about a quality of life. You follow this? Now, this, this quality of life extends into eternity, but eternal life needs to be understood. The moment you and I accept Christ, we have eternal life. We have a certain type of life. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. We have this amazing kind of life that God wants to give to us. You know, so often in life, we may be asking the right questions, but we're addressing them to the wrong people. 
How many know when you do that, you usually end up with the wrong answers? Or you know, worse, we can come with the wrong questions, even if we come to the right person. You know, that's a problem. And I think deep within the human heart, questions, you know, when we really get down to it, there's, there's all these questions that come along somehow and we have to answer them. And maybe when we're younger, we've dealt with some of these questions. Maybe we're still dealing with the questions, but questions like, you know, where did I come from? You know, well, you know, I came from my mommy's tummy. No, no, that's not the question. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where did life originate from? How did this world really begin? You know, was it just some sort of a freak explosion, an accident, you know? Or is, or is there truly a God that created this world and he has a definite goal in mind and he created human beings with a definitive purpose in mind? You see, those are a whole different way of looking at life. And then we, we, we look at, you know, the question, you know, what's my, why am I here? What is my purpose and where will I end up? These are the big questions of life. And most people don't want to think about them because they can be very disturbing if you don't have answers for them. You know, is there more to life than just these short fleeting years? And here in our text, a man runs up to Jesus. Obviously, he asks the right question to the right person, and we're gonna get the right answer. How many think that's good? So, the real challenge is, when we hear the right answer, how are we gonna respond to it? That's the challenge we're gonna be faced with today. And so we discover from both Matthew and Luke that this rich young ruler, and according to Mark here as well, it seems that he had everything life had to offer. He was young. He had a whole lifetime ahead of him. He was rich. He had the resources to do what he wanted. He was a ruler. That means he was telling others what to do. He wasn't being told what to do. How many think life was pretty good for him? And yet he sensed something was missing. So he ran to Jesus. And we pick up the story in Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell at his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, what we need to understand in that context of time, and you're a Jew, is that only God was considered good. So why was this young ruler calling Jesus good? You know, Jesus is not, you know, refuting that he's not God, but he's calling attention to the fact that God is good. In other words, why are you calling me good? Who do you think I am? You know, he's kind of raising that question. That's a, how many think that's kind of an important question? That's kind of a question that Mark wants us to keep asking. Who is Jesus? And, you know, if you keep studying the Gospels, you know, Mark keeps demonstrating that Jesus is more than just a man, right? How many know you just don't talk to the weather and it changes? I mean, you know, the disciples say, who is this man? You know, even the winds and the waves obey him. See, Mark is constantly trying to get us to ask the question, who is this man? Jesus answers the question with the understanding that all Jewish people would understand. You know, if we really keep the law in its intent, which would be to love God supremely, we would experience eternal life. That's really the answer Jesus is gonna give this young man. Look at verse 19. He, Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and money, mother. However, we often like this young man follow the letter of the law and we often miss the essence of it as we're about to see. How many know you can actually be keeping the outer nature of law, but missing the real meaning behind it. 
You know, isn't that true? Yeah, you can, you can rigidly follow certain guidelines but miss the intent of what the guidelines are about. That's what I'm talking about. And this is exactly what happens. Now, what's fascinating about Jesus' answer is what? Where does he start in the enumerating of the Ten Commandments? Does he start with the first commandment? No. Does he start with the second commandment? No. The third? No. The fourth? No. You know the first four are all to do, to do with what? God, loving God. He doesn't even go there. What does he do? He starts, he doesn't even start with commandment number five. He skips down and he's moving all over the place. But the point is simply this. Jesus is telling this rich young ruler that you need to love what? What are the six, seven, eight, nine, and ten commandments are all about? It's about how we treat other people. Don't kill them, don't, mur- you know, don't steal from them, don't defraud them, don't covet what they have. It's all about our relationship to other people. Why would Jesus do that? Why is Jesus starting there and not at the first four about loving God? Do you know why I think he's starting there? Because I think it's so easy to say I love God. And Jesus is basically saying if you really love God, you're gonna love people right. Isn't that true? So the measure of our love to God who is unseen can only be expressed in how we treat those who we see, the people in our lives. So you and I can think that we're great saints. We can say, oh man, I really love Jesus, but if I treat people poorly, that's really an indictment of my true love towards God. The real measure of how much I love God is determined by how I treat people. Is everybody getting this? In other words, you and I cannot say we love God and hate people. You and I can only say we love God by how we treat people. And if we love people and serve people and do good by people, it's an expression of how we truly love God. Wow. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sheep and the goats where he says that if we feed the hungry, care for the stranger, visit the prisoner and sick, that we're actually doing it to him. As a matter of fact, Matthew 25 says it this way. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Um, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you thirsty and give you something to drink? When When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. In other words, Jesus says, the way you treat people is how you're treating me. How many think that's pretty powerful? Isn't that the message? Do we, are we getting that? Now, here's the most profound thought as I, we're reading the story. We're going to find out that this young, rich ruler actually cared for people. Very powerful. Let me move on to the second uh, element in true discipleship the first one is getting to what possesses us and we're going to find out what was really possessing this young guy the second one is what problems are impeding the blessing of being a follower of christ in other words you know what there's all kinds of hindrances and impediments and difficulties in being a true follower of christ there's some things that get in the road 
And even now in our lives, we have things that we're going to have to address and get beyond so we can truly be a fully devoted follower of Christ. Now, what we're going to discover in Jesus' answer is that what we're really seeing is an outward conformity of the law. Often in life, we think we're doing better than we actually are. How many know that's probably true? As a matter of fact, I was kind of reading through Psalm 36 yesterday. I was looking at the psalm, and I, and I kind of developed a grid. And it's actually a line of how you and I move away from God. It starts with we have pride in our hearts. And the next line, it says, then we flatter ourselves so much that we cannot see the sin that's in our life. We stop acting wisely. We stop doing good. You know? And then eventually we start meditating on the wrong that we can do. How many see kind of a, a kind of a line of progression moving away from God? And a lot of times, the problem is we think we're okay. You know, if you talk to the average person in our society who's not a Christian, if you ask them, how are you doing? The vast majority would say, I'm doing okay. Right? I'm not a bad person. How many, how many people see themselves as bad people? The vast majority of people I talk to, they see themselves as a good person. I mean, there are exceptions. There are some people so messed up, they go, I'm a bad person. The vast majority of people see themselves as a good person. How many think that's probably true? They see themselves that way. But the problem is, it's not what we see, it's what God sees. And see, this young man saw himself as, hey, I do all these things. It says, uh, when he asked if he kept the commandments, he said, certainly. He said, teacher, verse 20, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Wow. How many say, I'm pretty impressed. That's pretty impressive. In other words, I'm a moral person. I'm an ethical person. I'm doing good. I'm doing the right stuff, right? I know what it is, and I'm doing these things. And you know, Jesus never challenges his answer. He doesn't say, no, you're not. He doesn't get into an argument with him. You know, how, how many times when we're sharing with people, it's too funny, we're trying to make them feel bad about who they are, we're trying to make them feel like a sinner. You don't even need to do that. Jesus doesn't approach it that way. You know, he doesn't come to condemn people. He doesn't do it that way. What's fascinating is he just lets him say what he's gonna say. And then the Bible says something very powerful, verse 21. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, I'm going I'm to make a statement here. Jesus loved him, even though, as we're going to see, this young man did not love Jesus. I want to say to you that Jesus loves people, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done or haven't done. Jesus loves people. Jesus loved this young man. We're going to come back to that in a little while, that statement. But he says, there's one thing you lack. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, the rich young ruler ran up to him, knelt down before him, and said what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Obviously, he felt he was lacking something. He felt like he had not done enough. There was something missing in his life. So Jesus goes along and answers his question. There's one thing you are missing. There's one thing that there is a lack in your life. Here it comes. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then follow me. Wow. The Bible says at this the man's face fell. He went away sad or grieved because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around. 
He said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's a very powerful message. Why did this young man walk away? Because he could not give up what he was enjoying in this life. He could not give up what he felt was his source of security. He could not give up the value that he received from the life he was living. He was a ruler. He had a lot going for him. He could not put those things aside in order to follow Jesus. How many can see that when you have a lot, it's hard to give it up? The more you have, the harder it is to give it up. Jesus is saying that's why it's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. The people that are struggling with the gospel message are not the down and outers. As a matter of fact, I would argue from the scriptures that the down and outers received Jesus' words gladly because they had nothing in this life. There was very little to give up and it was so easy to follow after him. But when people have all of what this world has to offer and Jesus is saying, set it aside for me, that is a bigger sacrifice. Isn't that true? Do you know why a lot of people can't come to Christ in our culture today? Because they're enjoying what this society has to offer. They're enjoying maybe the wrong relationships. They're enjoying maybe, you know, illegal or immoral activities. Come on now. Isn't that really the reason that's impeding them from experiencing true happiness? Because they're getting a measure of happiness in their earthly pursuits, but it's not ultimately satisfying but it's at least satisfying enough to keep them away from the ultimate satisfaction how many say that's tragic isn't that kind of tragic in some ways that we're we're you know we get just a little bit a taste a little bit of something good but the little bit of something good is keeping us away from what's best Isn't it kind of tragic that we're willing to forfeit our soul for a little bit of earthly time with a little bit of earthly stuff, but we're forfeiting it for all of eternity and for the eternal wealth and riches of an amazing life with God. Don't you think it would be so wise on our part to say, you know, if I have to give up what this has to offer me in order to gain all of this, you know, if I could just see this in the right understanding, it would be so much easier for me to give up. But Jesus understands the nature of people. How hard it is for the rich to give up what they have in order to gain something even greater. Wow. I love the way, uh, well, the one thing that we must do in order to follow Jesus is to trust him implicitly. But if you're trusting in your earthly wealth, it's really hard to trust Jesus. And that's why, you know, when we have an economic downturn, it's so hard for some people because really what's being struck at is what, that which they've put their trust in. If you were to lose everything today, but you're a child of God, you'd be okay. You could go on from ground zero. They could take the twin towers out of your life and bring you down to ground zero. And it would be painful at first, but you would realize, I still have everything. I have my faith in God. 
I have a faith in the one who loves me. I have the faith in a father who's going to care for me. Even though God has leveled me down, he's allowed me to be leveled down to ground zero, I can still go on. Timothy Keller frames a discussion in his book, Jesus the King. He says, of course, you know, you shouldn't do bad things. He had lived an ethical life, right? He was doing good things. He wasn't doing bad things, right? How many see that? This young man was not doing bad things. You see, so often we think that the gospel is for people who are doing bad things. I want to say the gospel is for people who are also doing good things. The gospel isn't just for people who are immoral sinners. The gospel is also for people who are moral sinners. And sometimes it's harder to understand the gospel when you're a moral sinner. It's really hard to explain to people that, you know, when you're a moral sinner that you need Christ. Because what you're doing is trusting in yourself. There's a lot of impediments to following Jesus, folks. But if you just repent of doing bad things, all it will do is make you a religious person. You know, we have a lot of religious people in church. They stop doing bad things. The question I'm asking today is, are you doing good things? That's a different question, isn't it? I've stopped doing the bad things, Pastor. That's really great. But have you done the things that God's called you to? If you want eternal life, if you want intimacy with God, if you want to get over that nagging sense that there's still something missing, if you can't find a way to get the stain out, then you have to change how you relate to your gifts and your successes. You have to repent of how you've been using your good things. Because, you know, some of us were using the good things in the wrong way. This is a shock. I know. Why is God blessing me? You ever ask yourself that question? Why is God blessing me? Maybe so that you'd be a blessing to other people. If you want to be a Christian, of course, you'll repent of your sins. But after you've repented of your sins, you have to repent of how you're going to use the good things in your life to fill the place where God should be. In other words, what do we do with the blessings God gives us? Do we just expend it on ourselves? Or do we use what God has blessed us with to be a blessing to others? What's being communicated by this story? Does this mean that all Christians at all times must sell everything they have and give it to the poor? How should we understand this text? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked that one. This is a very disturbing passage. Jesus has zeroed in on where this young man's trust truly was. It was in his material possessions, was it not? Didn't he kind of isolate what the real issue was in this guy's soul? He just said, you know what? You're trusting the wrong thing. You know what? You're actually a slave to everything you own. We don't know that. Isn't it true? You know, I, I jokingly say, you know, at the end of your life, everything starts shrinking until your world becomes a room, until your world becomes a bed. I know that because I'm a pastor and I visit people. I was, I was there a few days before John Elder, Ellerby passed away. I saw him fight that final battle with pain. I saw that battle before my eyes. At the very end of the day, all the things you have doesn't mean very much. It really doesn't, folks. Well, yeah, you could have lived a nice life. You could have lived an enjoyable life. But the end, at the end of the day, it's not what it's all about. How much would you give for eternal life? How much would you pay for eternal life? 
You ever thought about it? Interesting question. James Brooke gives us some insight into the meaning of the text. He said the command to sell everything and give to the poor should not be universalized and applied literally to every professing Christian. Obviously, there were Christians that were wealthy in the Bible. Even later on in the book of Mark, we run into this rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. So Mark is not teaching us that we have to give everything away. It pertains to the need of a particular person. It should not be ignored either. I love this part. See, a lot of times we read the story and we just go, it can't mean what it says, and then we just move on. But it means something. That's what James Brooks is saying. This story means something, but we gotta figure it out. What does it mean? Other persons may have to give up other things in order to follow Jesus. Some of us, maybe we have to change our vocation. Maybe God is calling us today to do something other than what we're doing. Maybe God is calling you to give up a certain lifestyle and maybe he's asking you to downsize. Maybe he's asking you, you know, to change vocations. Maybe he's calling you to another part of the world. You don't know what God is doing unless you're seeking God. Maybe we don't want to hear this, God. Or maybe it's a style of life or a sinful passion or a relationship. Maybe God says, this is impeding your progress in the kingdom of God. You need to give this up. Yeah, but I don't want to give this up, God. God says, yeah, but that's, that thing is now an idol in your life. Remember we read Psalm 4? You know, there are things that we actually, we are you know, delusioned. We're, we have a delusional state of being. We think that this is important. God says, no, it's not. Give it up. It's become an idol in your life. Set it aside. This is what I'm talking about. This is what the story is trying to get across to us. Is there something in your life that is more important to you than God is? Is there a hobby? Is there a person? Is there a passion for something, a driving force that's greater than knowing and serving God? And only you can answer that question. I can't answer it for you. I have to answer it for me. You know, I had to answer for me earlier in my life when ministry, you know, overtook me. You know, ministry can be an idol. People don't realize that. And you have to lay it down. Give it up. You know, ministry is not an idol to me anymore. It was years ago, but it's not now. How do you know that, Pastor? Because I don't think when I stop pastoring, I'll stop pastoring. And what I mean by that is, the day I stop being a leader of a church doesn't mean I stop caring and loving and nurturing and teaching and instructing and discipling people. I'll continue to do that. I don't have to do it on this scale. Does that make sense? How do you know that? Because I've done it before. I've walked away before. I've started over again. I know what it's all about. I know all of the emotional ramifications of that decision. Discipleship, sorry, the call is not to poverty, but to discipleship, which takes many forms. Discipleship, however, is costly. It involves sacrifice. It involves obedience. It involves following the example of Jesus, but it also involves rewards. Here's the good part. Jesus continues to expand on the cost of discipleship. In verse 23, he looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said it again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. You know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed 
And they said to each other, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, that is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. What is Jesus saying? He's saying it's impossible to, to, for us to be saved apart from God. You and I can't be in a right relationship with God unless we come to God on his terms. You and I can't have this relationship because we've done all the right things. We can only have this relationship as a gift from God and he's willing to freely give it to us. It's an offer. He says, come follow me. The gift of eternal life comes by following Christ. And notice I made it a verb, following Christ. For some Christians, they think a prayer 50 years ago was the defining moment and ever since then they haven't been following Christ. Let me tell you something, you're living in a state of self-deception. This is a life of following. True Christianity is not a static thing, folks. It's not a decision I made. It's a decision, not just that I made, you know, a long time ago or 10 years ago or five years ago or two months ago. It's a decision I'm making every single day. Am I following Jesus daily? take up your cross daily walking with Christ every day getting up and saying Lord what are we doing together today Lord what are you calling me today how can I serve you today how can I obey you today how many are getting a sense that this is not just you know this little prayer Lord I'm a sinner I received Jesus into my heart and boom I'm on my way to heaven and then I live the rest of my life for myself how many see that's just kind of disconnected that's kind of a North American version of evangelicalism that's not even biblical. How many are beginning to see that? That Jesus is actually calling us to lay stuff down in order to keep following him. And if there's impediments in my life, I must lay those things down. And you know what it does? You know, you can lay things down initially. You can lay wrong lifestyles down initially. But later on, you and I can pick up other things that become impediments. And he's calling us to lay those things down in order for us to keep following him. You know, you know why the disciples were shocked by this statement? Because they had a very simplistic view of what it meant to have a right relationship with God. They really believed that if they did the right thing, God would bless them and prosper them financially. By the way, is that theology still out there? Totally. You know, and then they had this other idea that if you were poor, somehow God was looking down and frowning on you. But yet, it's so fascinating to me when I read the, the Psalms, how often God says he's for the poor, that he's gonna raise up the poor, the humble, and the oppressed. That Jesus comes along and starts talking about, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Jesus somehow elevates that side of the equation because I believe that Jesus was actually you know, trying to fix a lot of bad theology that a lot of people had the wrong idea. Remember the, the rich man who fared sumptuously every day? Remember that guy that didn't do anything for Dives, who was the, the poor man that came begging at his table? He had no compassion for that man, and then eventually he ends up you know, in hell. Remember that story? Jesus tells it. And what's Jesus doing? It's shocking to this man. He can't believe he's in hell. He sees Abraham, and he sees the guy that was the poor beggar who he thought you know, was obviously unfavored by God but now is in the presence of God and he the rich man a Jewish rich man is now in hell how was that shocking what was Jesus doing he was shattering their wrong thinking and their wrong theology and he's doing it again in the story because Jesus has a way of flipping things has anybody figured that out yet 
For this man's wealth is an actual danger as it doubtless is for most disciples. For it prevented him from doing the one thing necessary for salvation. Wealth can often and does exist in other material forms. Anything that causes disciples to forget their poverty and childlikeness before God and that prevents them from following Jesus Christ, this too is a camel before the eye of a needle. Now, I know we've heard this beautiful little analogy. There was a little gate in Jerusalem and the camels had to unpack, right? You've all heard that? That story only started coming in the ninth century AD. No early evidence exists that there was a small gate called the Eye of the Needle. The claim first appears in the ninth Christian century, long after the destruction of Jerusalem of Jesus' day. The contrast between the largest Palestinian animal, which was a camel, and the one of the smallest openings is clearly intended to indicate the impossibility of a rich person or anyone else entering the kingdom of God by doing something for him or herself. It's a metaphor. You know, we have metaphors in life, right? This is a metaphor, folks. They all got it. They're listening. They're going. Jesus says, it's about as, you know, it's as easy for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God as it is for a camel to be squeezed through the eye of a needle. They said, well, then it's impossible. Right answer. That's why these guys were amazed. They go, well, how do you get saved? Jesus says what's impossible for men is possible for God. So how do we get saved? How can we have eternal life? How can we have this relationship with God? I'm glad you asked that question. Through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Peter then responds to Jesus' incredible challenge to give up what hinders us from completely following Jesus. Look at verse 28. Peter said, hey, we've left everything to follow you. And now comes the most amazing promise in verse 29. He says, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home, brothers, sisters, mothers, father, children, or feels for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. What is God saying? You and I can never outgive God. What he's saying is whatever you give up for God, God will more than compensate for your loss. As a matter of fact, if you're willing to give things up for God, you will be richly rewarded, not only in eternity on the other side, but in this present age. How many people have had to lose family members or friends because they followed Christ? But you know what God says? I'm gonna give you family, and he does. We come into the church and the Bible says he is our father. We're all sons and daughters. We're all brothers and sisters. We are a new family. You know, I feel a lot closer so often in my life to my spiritual family than I do my biological family. How many say, I'm with you, pastor? That's the truth for me. Anybody else? Probably not for all of you, but for some of us. You know, some of you, you had Christian families. Great. It's easy to connect with them. But you try growing up around people who are non-Christians, and they think you're crazy. Yeah, they think you're just like, lost your mind. What are you doing? What kind of an idiot are you? You know? You gotta be stupid, right, to be a Christian? You gotta check your brains out at the door? Some people think like that. That's true. That's, that's some of the attitude today. 
I'm going, well, I'm not relating to where that. Or else, you know, they're sitting down talking about things, and I'm going, this is so crass, so boring, so, you know, I have no interest in these things. And you're sitting there at a family gathering listening to all this stuff, and you're just going, I don't connect with this. You know, I'm not, I'm not connecting. But, you know, stick me where the bunch of believers, and we're talking about spiritual things and the good things of God, and my soul's coming alive because we're wired a certain way. Wow. Then Jesus says this, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Isn't that interesting? He just says, I'm gonna reverse everything. And I like how Timothy Keller points out regarding Jesus' challenge to the rich young ruler. But it's also a challenge to us, and I wanna leave us with this challenge. All the hindrances that come to keep us from completely and fully following Christ. Mark tells us Jesus loved him just like Jesus loves each one of us. Did Jesus love him? Uh, uh, I'm skipping over some parts here. Did Jesus love him for his leadership potential? Was it because of what the man said? Keller says, no, I don't think so. Jesus, who is at this point about 31 years old, looks at him and identifies with him. Jesus, too, is a rich young man, far richer than this man can ever imagine. As a matter of fact, Jesus has lived in the incomprehensible glory, wealth, love, and joy of the Trinity from all of eternity. He's already left all that wealth behind him. Jesus is the rich young ruler, folks. Are you getting the irony in this story? He's already given up everything. He's already left that wealth behind. Paul says that though Jesus Christ was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. And he's saying, and I'm going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. Jesus says, I'm giving it all away. Why? For you and for me. Now, you give away everything to follow me. And if I gave away my big all to get you, can you give your little all to follow me? I won't ask you to do anything I haven't already done. I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now you need to give away yours to get me. Interesting thought, isn't it? How is the text challenging me? How should I respond to Jesus' challenge? What is he really saying to me? He's saying, what's hindering you from fully following me? Is it money? Is it time? Is it affection? Is it hobby? Is it a person? What is it? That's what Jesus is trying to get to in all of our lives. What is it that possesses us? Is it our possessions, a person, a position, a passion? that keeps us from supremely serving Jesus. To give up that one thing will be to bring freedom and joy into our life of service. We talked about living free. Do you know why we're not free? We get so many things we're tied to that are keeping us away from fully serving Christ. Is that interesting? I think that's what the story is about. Whatever it is, you, only you can figure that out. I want you to write that last sentence down. I want you to go home and think about it. Because you know what happens when we're in church? We hear a sermon. Oh, yeah, that was a good sermon. And then somebody will ask it in about three hours. What was the pastor talking about? Oh, something about a rich young ruler. I don't know what exactly he was rattling on about. Seemed all excited about it at the time. I felt a little stirring in my heart. And then I forget about it. And we go on to next week's sermon. Isn't that the way we kind of operate? And then we kind of go, you know, I can't figure out why I'm not free. 
What am I saying to us? We're as free as we want to be. What do you mean by that, Pastor? You know, a long time ago, I used to think, you know, if God could only give me a little more of himself, God said, that ain't the problem. I give, I've given you everything. The issue in your life is you have as much of God as you want. Did you know that? You have a, as much of God as you want. It's not on God's end that there's a problem. It's on our side. How much does God have of us? What's really possessing us? What's really driving us? Well, I want to be noticed. I want to have fame. I want to have finances. I want to have security. And I'm saying to you, true freedom, true joy, true peace, true security are found in Christ. That's where they're all found. And you and I, are, are having the substitutes. Isn't it interesting? In our house, we have two types of people, those that eat the synthetic maple syrup and those that eat the real stuff. <laughs> and I won't tell you who eats the real stuff and who eats the synthetic stuff. But it was interesting. I'm having this conversation, and there are people in my household who prefer the synthetic stuff over the real stuff. Okay? I'm just asking the question today. Do you want the real thing or the synthetic thing? And the problem in North America is most of us are saying, I like the synthetics. Okay? And I'm saying, oh, we got the real thing waiting for us. It's far greater. Let's stand. <laughs> How many want to pray with me? Search me, O oh God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. How many go, that's a scary prayer? Because, you know, sometimes we can be so self-flattering, we can't see it. But I tell you, if we pray this prayer today, and we mean it, God will start searching. Things will start popping up. Whoa, what's that? And maybe we're imbibing on that which is not authentic. And Jesus goes, Wow, I want to give you the real thing, right? And it's not Coke, right? <laughs> Are we getting the picture? I want to give you the real thing. It's a life with me every day, following after me. How many of you say, Pastor, let's pray? Are you ready for it? Search me, oh God. Did you write your little sentence down? God, is there anything impeding my relationship with you? Take it out of there. Amen? Amen? And you know what? I'm going to give you the promise. If you do that, don't be anxious. God will take care of you. As a matter of fact, he said, anything you give up for me, I'll replace. Anything you give up for me, I'll replace. I think God's replacements are pretty good. Hello? God's replacements are pretty good, guys. Amen. So whatever you have to lay down this week, God goes, but I got a good replacement in store for you. I'll give you the real thing. Okay? So Lord, we pray today. Search our hearts. Lord, if there are things in our lives, and I'm sure there are, that are impeding our journey with you, I pray this week we give you permission.
identify them. Help us to walk away from them. Because you have something better in mind. Not only in the age to come, but also in this present age. You said, I'll give you houses. I'll give you friends. I'll give you family. Oh, I'll also allow persecution to come your way. Because the moment we really start becoming authentic, people around us become threatened. That's what happens. That's the nature of this thing. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.